Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Battle Royale podcast. Tonight's episode, today's lesson is... Which I think I've got the complete wrong bloody name there. Um, I'm your host as always, Edward Jones. And joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. And tonight we're joined once again by a very special guest all the way from Baltimore and French Toast Sunday. It's the one and only Mr. Nick Rehack. Oh, thank you very much, sir. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. Uh, thank you for obviously joining us and uh, coming on to discuss Battle Royale. Um, I obviously have to ask, as we do with everyone who comes on the show, I mean, what's your sort of history with the film? Is this something that you hunted down when it came out, or is it something you sort of stumbled into through sort of word of mouth? I stumbled into it through word of mouth. Uh, senior year of high school, so this is like 07, I had heard of a film like this. I'm like, it's pretty wild. Someone's like, yeah, it's banned in America. Like, we'll never see it. I'm like, oh, okay. So it would just be like murmurs on like message boards and things. And then my second year in college, so let's say, was that 08? 08 into 09, somewhere in there, I somehow got my hands on a bootleg DVD copy of it. So it was like YouTube, like quality wasn't like obviously the clearest thing. But I remember watching it and being like astounded. I'm like, this is great. I'm like, this is, I want more of this kind of thing. And then, uh, what, like 10, 10 years ago? I can't remember when, but the Blu-ray box set came out here on the state side. I immediately nabbed it up. And uh, everyone's like, yeah, it's the first time it's been on the states. I'm like, oh, maybe legally. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but I was very excited when it came out. And anytime I get a chance to, people always like, man, I need some action-packed. I'm like, well, I've got the movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so. I mean, it's so weird because as we talked about on, on many of the times on our other show, the uh, Asian Summer Film Club, uh, that <clears throat> over here in Britain, I mean, obviously it comes out in 2000 and it sparks this whole cultural revolution in, in reviving the interest in Asian cinema and obviously for you guys in the States because of, you know, the climate that you have, obviously, with the amount of high school shootings and other issues regarding sort of gun crime and violence and just sort of kept getting pushed back and I think, I can't help but uh, think that you got us back by delaying Snowpiercer until, well, this year. <laughs> <laughs> so we finally got to see Snowpiercer. That still blows my mind. I know, and it was all because of one Weinstein. He just f threw his toys out of the pram and um, as part of him being locked up for being the scumbag that he is, we finally got it released, so I mean, the way the studio systems work constantly astounds me. I mean, you look at Underwater, that was made, completed in 2017, only now released in 2020 because Disney decided to clear the shelves of Fox. So, And that's another good movie that people should be talking more about, but they're not. So maybe when we finish this, we're... It's always how it's going to go. Sorry? Wait, Underwater, are you talking about the most Yeah, the most one? under... The one with, um... oh, what's her name? Kristen yes. Stewart? And Vincent Cassell. Really? I didn't know it was hanging out for that. Yeah, long. it was. Um, he sound the shelf and since twenty seventeen, much like Cabin in the Woods. It had and Cabin in the Woods what? only sort of came out because of um, four. That uh, they basically was like, oh, what else have we got with this guy? And then they sort of dusted Cabin in the Woods out and brought that out. So, huh. it's just the darndest thing that when you think of like. You, that studios invest money into making something and then just leave it on a shelf. Yeah, somewhere. and then it just sits. And then it makes you wonder what else they have on the shelf, starring who and what. And I mean, it, it, ha it, ha it happens all over. So, um, so we'll bring it back to our Asian cinema, Elwood. Um, film, um, Il Mare, um, French title, but it's a Korean film. Um, mm -hmm really was part of the sort of the Korean wave back in the early 2000s, really popular film, huge star um, in it, or a couple of huge actors in it, but wasn't going to be released on the shelf. And then the lead actress um, starred in My Sassy Girl, which then became a huge Pan-Asian hit. And they said, oh, we can release this film now. And, and it was, you know, it was another huge hit as well. And indeed got a um, Sandra Bullock remake in, in America, but they weren't going to release that because I guess the money that you make, the money that you, you spend making a film it is still only 50% or 60% of what you spend in total with all the 
publicity you know we always yeah, talk about how much a film how much a film costs to make well that's maybe 50 60 percent of it it always seems that the 40 percent of the cost is, is absolutely in the marketing and in the distribution so maybe mm. sometimes if you're not gonna it's cutting your losses isn't it if you just don't think it's gonna work you're better off losing 50 million quid than investing another 60 yeah, and then if, if it just so happens, like you said, with uh, you know Thor and Chris Hemsworth, then you release a movie like that, well, you really don't need to say a whole lot about it or advertise it a whole lot because people will find it if they like that actress or actress. Yeah, indeed. And it's often the films... That's crazy. It's often these films that just go out there and completely shatter our conceptions of what filmmaking is. I mean, obviously, when you look at what Cameron Wood did for horror films and just basically turn everything on its head, playing Absolutely. the tropes in much the way that we saw with Scary Movie, not Scary Movie, um, Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's just a shame. And then these we sit around wondering, so like, oh, why is there no more films like this? And it's like, well, because we had this film sitting on the shelf for like three years. Nobody thought that we should be making more of these, so... But um, obviously, back to Battle Royale. I mean, obviously, tonight's uh, tonight's episode, Life is a Game. We're on the second half of the classroom visit. On our previous episodes, we obviously have seen our class rounded up. And on the previous episode, they got the very much rude awakening that the necklaces around them actually do work, as we saw with poor Nobu, who got his throat blown out. Or if you're reading the book, got his head blown off, which probably doesn't help with proving the necklaces work too much but the game is very much afoot even if we're still in in the classroom katana is very much in control of the situation he's already eliminated two of our class and there's now we move into the second half of his orientation and we which were reintroduced to everyone's favorite perky orientation girl as she now explains the <laughs> rules of uh, battle royale in particular, the bags which are now going to be handed out and which will provide all the class with a much more level playing field. As when we look at many of these class, they're all sort of athletic and sort of stars and very sort of got a much more advantage over certain members of the class. So by handing out these bags, it's the idea being that it will level the playing field by giving them not only supplies, a flashlight, compass, map, but also a weapon which may be something good, like a shotgun or a machine gun, or something rather naff, like a pan lid or a paper fan. <laughs> Binoculars. <laughs> so, let's, I mean, obviously when we look at the the sort of class here, I mean, Stephen, I mean, you've mentioned on previous episodes the fact that none of them seem to have a clue what's actually going on with the Battle Royale Act. They all sort of stumble into this situation, despite the fact that this isn't the first time the Act's been in place it, they've been numerous games before um and yet they're still they're looking a little shell-shocked so would you say that it's at this point that the get the reality of the situation has finally sunk in for these idiots i think it has they've just seen two of their colleagues um classmates murdered um one with a knife to the forehead <laughs> and one with a um one with his bangling go off um suddenly we are you know it's it's very real to them and in that sort of second half of showing that orientation video i get the sense they're paying a bit more attention because actually there's a whole bunch of rules you need to now understand <laughs> um it's not it's you know about about you know they get told, told about the sectors and they get told about um you know that, that everyone's going to know what they're doing and, and and they seem to be paying a lot more attention and then you know, and, th- and then the bags get bought in, and I guess at that point, for them, it, it, it suddenly suddenly becomes very real. Yeah, I mean, it turns into like the world's worst secret Santa. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Nick, obviously, in regards to how the game is sort of set out, the rules and that. I mean, how did you find the actual sort of setup of this game? Because I mean, it's it could, they could be very much done like every other sort of battle royale movie, and just dump them in random locations and have them sort of fend for themselves but obviously in this uh this game they're brought together in a classroom and then sort of released one by one with their bags i mean how did you find the sort of setup for the this particular battle royale because it's obviously not the first time we've seen this before i really liked it because it's controlled it's hey we're going to tell everybody what's going on and off you go and once they're gone it creates this tension too and this dread every person that's last 
they got to be thinking in their head, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to survive. And immediately everybody that's out, they're either going to get a great defensive position or they're going to maybe take an offense position and just start plucking people off at the beginning so they can live. I mean, I believe it was just the scene prior when you got the kid saying, uh, hey, if I win, do I get to go home? And he's like, yeah. And then immediately everybody was like, oh, we need to get better at this. We need to do something to get out of here. Um, I've always liked it, but at the same time, I do like the – I wish some things weren't told to them, like the idea of, like, hey, these are the danger zones. It would have been nice if they got on the speakers and they were like, oh, yeah, um, don't go here because it's a danger zone. And I'd be like, wait, what's going on? What's going to happen? I think that would add a little bit more. But at the same time, I do like that they tell you, like, yeah, don't go over here. And But it also it, – no it never really happens. We never really see anything. So it's almost like why even bring it up if we're not going to be shown – was it like a Chekhov's gun? You know what I mean? It's like a Chekhov's danger zone. We never see anybody get zapped because they're not where they're supposed to be. Certainly so. I mean, in regards to the danger zones, they come into more into play in both the the book and the the manga. Um, there's more mention okay. that they sort of linger in, in the danger zones, but again, nobody's getting their head blown off by sort of hanging around in these areas. But I think it's just more mm-hmm. just to, because people are just, if you don't have this, this, then the audience will go, well, if I was in this game, I'd just go and hide off in this far end of the island um, <laughs> and just you know camp out there and wait this whole thing out over whereas by having the danger zones you're essentially being forced into the center point of the island so you're being pushed into fighting whether you want to either at that point become either hunter or prey and it's surprising as well that when we mention the the, the this idea of that you get to go home if you can survive the game is this an, obta- an, an obtainable sort of brass ring do we think i think i think it's i think yes or no i think it's they don't want them to they want them to see the humanity in themselves and go well these are my friends these are i you know i I like these most of these people i'm gonna try to survive it out and be a team but they do have that caveat of well if no one can it can only be one if you're stuck then you're all gonna die at the same time so it does add that, like, moral conundrum in there, and they're trying to figure out, like, they're testing them in a way because all the rules came in place because, you know, kids were rebelling, kids were acting down. So they're like, fine, we're just going to start killing you off. And because of their attitudes, what brought them there, that's realistically is what should save them. But if they kind of showed the opposite of, like, no, we're actually good-hearted and there's, you know, purpose there, then maybe they won't. But, you know, later on in the film, we kind of see what's going on and what's really happening, so... But I'd like to think it's attainable, like it's doable. And Stephen, I mean, you obviously mentioned previously about the the lack of family connection here that these these kids have. I mean, obviously, they're told that their parents are aware of the situation, which is just blows your mind. It's sort of like, oh yeah, <laughs> little Jimmy's been sent off this island to compete in the battle rail. Might be coming home in a body bag. <laughs> just to let you know. Bye. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's 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 a weird promise to make in the confines of this film and the the characters that we know because um, we know, for example, Shuya, our main character, his dad committed suicide in the opening scenes of the film, so he hasn't got anyone to go home to. And um, we know that his best mate Nobu, though now he is, you know, he's he's, he's dead. He hasn't got um, to worry. He also comes from the children's home and the orphanage. Yeah, um, we know that. Um, one of the female characters we're going to find out she ain't got much to go home to because of, of how she's been treated by her step parents um and in fact none of them seem to have any kind of familial relation you know familial relationships at all there's no siblings there's no there's no parents really mentioned the only person who seems to be a parent and we don't know this yet is is um katano who who has a, a very strange relationship with his daughter and a paternal relationship with one of the students um so it seems like a strange promise because there's no the only characters we know about with a family you wouldn't want to go back to them or they there's no one to go back to um but then this this talks to that there is something about this and there are a lot of characters there are a lot of kids here they're what 50 kids yes um and we we only learn about a handful of them in any kind of depth so i guess the assumption is that the others are 
well, there's, there's, there's this dichotomy in the film where it doesn't actually make a lot of sense while they've turned up to the school trip if they haven't been to school for a year. And, have, and, and, and actually, have they all really been bad kids? And, and the answer's probably not. Just a handful of them have been. So a lot of it really confuses me and doesn't make a lot of sense. But I guess you stop thinking about it too deeply and you think, well, if I was a kid of that age, what are they? Um, uh, 14, 15, 16? 15, I think they're meant to be, aren't they? Uh, I think some of the actors really were 15 at the time. Um, it's a funny time, even even for Japanese kids. Yeah, that 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 that's a time where you are you are kind of breaking out and escaping from your parents. Um, you know, you're you're acting out, you're you're learning how to be an adult, but you're still very much a child that needs their parents' protection. And these guys have no protection from from anybody. Um, and again, because it's a Japanese film, the the concepts of family and family life are even more codified. You know how how, how the perfect family is meant to be. Um, this is this is completely against those the, the, those social structures which which we take for granted, I guess, normally. Um, obviously, when we looked at Katana, though, I mean, he's quite happy just to blow up these kids. He does not really care. I mean, he, he basically yells at them at one point, it's because you're all useless. So, <laughs> and I have to say, Nick, I mean, are you familiar with, like, the work of Takashi Takano? I mean, obviously, for myself and Stephen, he's someone we watch a lot of his uh, work, but for someone who obviously doesn't sort of just watch Asian cinema, I mean, is he someone who sort of, like, springs up on your sort of radar, or is he someone you've never really watched before other than Battle Royale. Surprisingly, yes. Uh, I It didn't dawn on me until like a couple minutes in when I saw him. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a Tomo from Outrage. Like, I really like Outrage and Beyond Outrage. So I saw him and I'm like, oh, I'm happy to see this guy. I don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> but I'm happy to see him because I think it's been like five or six years since I've seen this film. So this was also a nice chance to rewatch and almost like re-experience it. But I definitely... Certain scenes I look forward way to uh, more than others. But, yeah, it was definitely pleasant to see Katana here. It was the main reason I was excited for the American remake of Ghost in the Shell as well. When I saw that he was in the uh, cast as, as the uh, captain, I was like, oh, my God, Pete Takashi's in this. I would totally watch that. Very nice. I, uh, I have not, but I, bought, I have the, the original anime. Okay. I just I just need to I need to watch it. It's sitting on my shelf, and I'm like, I'm gonna watch you one day. It's good. Well, that day has not come yet. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously the anime is in a, a class of its own, but for what they've they've done in terms of Hollywoodizing that story, um, I mm. think that it was very well done. But I think at the same time, a lot of the anime fans and the fact that they cast Scarlett Johansson as a major, I think it just put a lot of people's backs up before they even saw the film. But I think it's mm. it's a very good adaptation of. Uh, a complex uh, anime, to say the least. Okay. Um, and go back and listen to episode one of the Film Club if you want to hear what we said about it. <laughs> Segway. The, where it all began. <laughs> Many moons ago now, it feels like. Um, now, when we obviously get into the class, I mean, obviously, first out of the gate is Akamatsu, who's the fat kid. Um, and he's... Basically, I mean, he's one of the few characters in this film whose character doesn't differ from, like, if you're reading the book or the manga. He's the same throughout. I mean, he's just basically the fat, bullied kid who's also the first to realize that, you know, this isn't going to be one of those situations where nobody's going to refuse to fight. This is We're now giving people a chance to settle a lot of the scores, and in particular, being the bully kid, he assumes that those same bullies are going to come after him, only now they're armed. Um, so... He's sort of becoming. He's one of the most sort of like paranoid straight off, out of the gates, and we see very much how he responds to the situation when we get into our next chapter. But when it comes to these bags, I mean, we look at um, the two transfer students in particular, like Kawada, who's the veteran of the previous games, and he's just there in what appears to be his prison outfit. But um, he has this <laughs> real sort of air of like control about him as he like grabs his bag and he goes like charging out the room and then we see as soon as he leaves the room he's walks down the hallway and the same can be also said uh, for uh, other 
we look at Kiriyama, who's apparently here to play the game for fun and with his anime hair. Um, and both of those seem to be completely unfazed by the, the situation, I think, mainly because they know what's going into it. But how did we obviously think when we look at when we look at the scene where Kawada basically goes out of the room and then comes back and changes his bag. Uh do we think that this is because that he knows what's in that particular bag or is he do you think he's checked to see what weapon he's got and thought, yeah, I ain't going with this, I'm gonna go and get something better. I think it's a um well I think it definitely confirms what we figure out early on in the film is that he and the other guy have been planted. Um, but I think it's a weight thing. I think in the moment when you're running, there's that adrenaline, you're running, you're just trying to get out and get your positioning. But then he stops and he's like, hold on. And he goes back. And I'm thinking maybe uh, when he get back in or when he came back into the fold, they promised him like, hey, you're going to start with X or Y. Um, or it could just be like, you know what? I don't care. Like I have done it before. Maybe they're going to cut me a break. Like, here we go. I mean, even uh, uh, Katana's character, he breaks the rules in the beginning by taking out two students. And he even says, like, oh, look, I broke the rules. Oops. <laughs> so it makes you wonder, like, I, he clearly lets him go. and He lets him get away with it. So it makes you wonder, like, what else is he going to let people get away with? Definitely. So, I mean, it's it's funny that the fact that we have a have all these sort of rules in place because when we get out into the field of play, basically everything's it, it's an open um, open open field. I mean, basically you can you can go and do anything you want as long as you're obviously staying within those danger zones. Um, I will also have to bring up my my constant complaint but this will be the last time that how come um these two guys are student uh, boys five and six yes. if they are new transfer students to the class number, numbers i just never thought about this the numbers they're given number they're given numbers right the two new guys should be at the end of the list because this numbering, this they do this in the Japanese schools. You will be, you know, you'll be student five. It's usually alphabetical, I assume, or something like that. But it's, 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 it's that number, something you'll go by. So they won't be five and six. They will be twenty-four and twenty-five. Um, and there should be a gap where, you know, well, there isn't a gap because we have the, the Nobu has a number. I can't remember what his number is, but, you know, he, he's he's killed off and his number's listed. So these two should not be this number. Right, that's the last time I'm going to mention it. I think I've mentioned it in at least three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. But that it, it's, you know, we, we talked a bit a couple of episodes ago where nothing in a film is there by mistake. Everything there is written. Everything is, is planned. And this just seems like stupid. And but I think it's the same in the manga and the novel as well. Yeah, I think they, they have, have the same but at the same time. <laughs> so, I don't know if it was. Don't know, oh, Karen, please sit down. Well, I was going to say to go on with this complaint. Uh, I don't know if you've addressed it in the other episodes as well. But what happened to the original boy five and boy six? Then, if all of a sudden they're the new five and six, the other guys get axed back, <laughs> exactly. something else, or... exactly. <laughs> Are there, is there a, is there a battle royale three where the two boys who forgot to go on the school trip <laughs> going to to do something else? Yeah, it's, it's like a um like a Clark's esque comedy where the two stoner boys who forgot to go on did something else that day. I'd pay to watch that. And then again, too, like when she's going through the rules, or when she goes listen to everybody names, she knows who she's calling. She knows five and six, so. How far in advance was this plan? Is this it can't be a live uh, presentation because they pause it at points. And I've mentioned so, that before as well. That doesn't make sense. Is, are they doing one of these for every single thing? I mean, again, I, I think we're meant to assume this is an annual event, um, right. not not happening yeah. multiple times. But yeah, they they absolutely put that presentation together for this class. Almost as if the new students four and five weren't going to turn, or five and six weren't going to turn up anyway. Mm. Because because she she names them doesn't she as 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 they go off yeah um yeah now obviously yeah. it's only a movie I shouldn't get so upset about it <laughs> but it's just so interesting it's just it's just it's just weird because everything else you know other things we've seen in the film other things have been put together with with precision um 
and even even things like the weapons people get and stuff like that you know it's it's all it's all very carefully put together so to to play out later that that is just just a weird thing but uh i say i promise never to mention it again well maybe <laughs> this episode <laughs> yeah well, I mean, when we look at these two characters, though, in both the novel and the manga, they're already in the class. I mean, Kawada, um, as we mentioned back in episode two, he was actually put back into the class, and it's only because he got held back a year that he ended up back in the program again. Um, so it's sort of bad luck for himself, whereas Kiriyama is already is already part of the, the class as well, so both of them were already classmates, which would make the numbers being called would make more sort of sense, and Maybe it was something that was sort of like changed that, you know, they needed to give these characters more of an edge for the film version and that they forgot, oh, wait a minute, they're going to be caught up in the register and they thought, well, nobody's going to notice it, you know. Maybe like one guy on some podcast over in, like 20 years later will pick up on it. But Well, I can't, question I can't believe I'm the first person to make that. <laughs> <laughs> breaking, breaking ground, breaking ground. <laughs> um, it... it obviously familiar with the book and the manga is there is there mystery and it, not intrigue obviously this whole thing is fascinating intriguing but is there any mystery mm. in the novel and the manga because maybe they want to add a little bit more of like mystery and like oh there's a twist kind of thing to it uh so this way not only are you engaged in trying to see who's going to survive but you're also trying to figure out like hey who are these people like who are these two guys Oh, and with with these two guys, their backstories, along with many of the other students, is a lot more filled out because you obviously have the space to fill it out. I mean, in a film, you've got you've you aren't exactly constructing something like June here, where you can have like elaborate storylines for every single character. I mean, we've got an hour and a half of film to fill here, so you can't put in the backstory of every single character. They tend to reserve it for like the main ones in the film. But when we look at uh, Kiriyame, he was, you know, he was this kind, loving student, and then he loses his mother in a car crash, as we mm. mentioned on the previous episode, and he just becomes right. numb to the world. And this is where he ends up in this sort of serial killer state, whereas in the film, he's just brought in as this delinquent who likes to kill people for fun. Um, and Kawada um, is very much just the same he's just a veteran from the previous games but in the book and the manga he's been drafted back into the school system as his um and essentially set up to continue his life but obviously with the scars of being in the battle royal programming he affects him so that he's obviously held back a year and then just inadvertently drafted back in so it was never the plan to put a veteran in for something that happened because of his life choices Which, again, doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, they picked picked the same school two years running, and these kids didn't notice the class above them are all dead. (laughs) But they get, first off, Stephen, they never turn up to school. And we also have a running conspiracy that Katano is the reason that they're because nobody stabbed him in the ass. Um,. So that his revenge on this this class, because he was obviously a teacher at the school, they him getting stabbed was like the final straw, and he disappears off for the year and becomes part of the battle royal program as the program administrator. So it would make perfect sense for him just to draft this class in as his revenge against them, even though it's never directly addressed. Um, it's all well into the illusion that it's this lottery that the class has been chosen by, but... Maybe he went to maybe Quarter went for a different school and they thought, you know, I'm drafted to a new town and, and whatnot, I can have a new start and it just happens that that was the town that they drafted him for this year's lottery. Maybe. We need to we need to get out of this classroom because I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm picking it apart. <laughs> now, I mean when I just obviously just like um, when we look at Shua, when Shua, when he goes um, and gets his bag, did you notice that Katano turns away and he's facing towards the blackboard? And he's not doing that for anyone else who lives there. It's almost like he can't look at Shuya's. He's almost dealing with sort of like the guilt that he killed Nobu. Um, that he can't look at Shuya directly in the face as he sort of like sets off on his sort of course. He just turns his back on him completely and every other class member he's he's there and he watches him go and for a few he taunts him as well 
And then that never even dawned on me. I just, huh, okay, that's interesting. No, I had noticed that as well, but you're probably right because he knows, you know, Katano knows those two are best buddies. Um, and may, may, maybe there's a, a flicker of guilt. Because we get that, and we also get the scene um, shortly after he, he kills him, where he sort of like, where he says, uh, I strangely respected him. Um, which is just this throwaway line, and it just makes me wonder, it's all like, yeah, I mean, but Nobu stabbed you in the ass. I mean, I don't understand what you particularly respect about Nobu, but... But um, certainly with this this whole, like, second part of the classroom scene, I think it really just still... It really establishes there's a lot of innocence in this, that the fact they're on this island, not all of them are going to become killers instantly, and there even you even have the girl who throws her pack away, which, you know... Is a protest move, sir. Absolutely stupid one. Well, unless she had a vase of flowers as a weapon, um, but <laughs> but but she's yeah she's missing out on the flashlight and stuff like that. But that was kind of interesting, and again something that that wasn't explored any more in the film. Um, I can't, can't remember what happens to her. I think I think that she's the uh, she's one of the students who kills herself. Ah, I want I, to say yeah, but. It reminded me of like this time I was at the station. This woman missed her train. That uh, she got those the doors were closed and she threw a coffee at the train. And I sat there watching. It's like you're really going to want that in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like yeah, it's great to make this great statement, but I mean it's not going to change the situation here. You're still going to be stuck on the island. You still got potentially forty eight other people who want to kill you on the island, and you just basically thrown away your one possible advantage you had. So yeah, it just never, it never really made particular sense why she would want to do that. But you know, it's her choice at the end of the day. Unless maybe in her head she's like, if I do this, then other people are going to see it. They're going to do it too. But the rest of the class was like, no. <laughs> when does that ever work? <laughs> like whenever you've like had this in your mind, you you and the class are going to like throw this big protest. When has that ever worked in real life? Oh, never, never, never. But um, I think certainly in this, these last sort of scene, moments of the sort of classroom sequence, we do see a lot of humanity with these sort of students. They're not all sort of working out their game plan straight off. I think at this stage, it's everyone's still very much still confused by the situation. I think they still can't believe that it's real, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially, it's just, I mean, even when they see, like, their students' dead body, two dead bodies in the class... And even when the first student kind of makes that turn, he stops and he sees all the soldiers and he like is shocked and then just shout at him like, run, get out of here. And then, I don't know. And I think it's after that moment when it happens because everybody starts, you know, being friends and like, hey, we're friends, you know, remember me. And even some of them, when they grab their bags, like they hold them up, like, you know, we're going to make it through, we're going to get this. And I think that's when it happens, when the first kid gets yelled at. I love the fact that so just yell at the students. That's um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's so bizarre when you see like you know students are te- soldiers who are like willing to just force children into this this game. It's such a bizarre circumstance, and I can't help but wonder is it it because the world has become so absolutely shitty with like you know the youth uprising and employment at this low that they have such faith in the battle royale act to mm-hmm. sort of restore the balance. I mean, yeah, one of the things we don't really get to hear about is, I, mean, I, I think I think this has been going on for a number of years. Um, the Battle Royale was passed at some point. There have been a number of Battle Royals that have happened. We know of at least two, right? Yes. And get, in fact, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, no, yeah. So we have the girl, we have the young girl in the opening shot who survives, and I guess she go... Um, she would turn up in uh, Battle Royale too. As yeah. one of the Wild Seven, and I'm guess yeah, I'm guessing our, our returnee was from last year because there's been a year's gap. Um, so this is at least the third iteration. Um, I wonder if they've paid any thought to is it making things any better? Because the fact the kids don't seem to know about it probably means this is a fairly pointless exercise. <laughs> and they don't seem to know about it. No one seems to be watching it on TV to understand. You know, there's no, there's no. Um, doesn't seem to be like a big media interest in it, and and maybe that's because this film was made in, you know, two thousand, probably just before 
the sort of the world of of Big Brother and and reality TV taking off. I, I wonder if they made it today, if it would have a slightly different bent. The same way that um, a film, a, a, a book's written at a very similar time, but apparently have, have no connection to it. Um, in the Hunger Games, <laughs> um, with a very similar kind of idea, did did take the um, the concept of it being a reality show. Um, different ways. Yeah, I wonder if they remade it today, whether they'd they'd take it in a slightly different direction. Well, I mean, the Battle Royale, when you look at the Hunger Games, they change it every year, like the location and mm. and what their, their twist is going to be. Because um, I know in the book that they had, they tried once in like a snow setting, but all the contestants just froze to death and it didn't make it <laughs> interesting information. And another year, they just give them all like... Um, hand-to-hand combat weapons like heavy maces to bludgeon each other to death with and when it comes to Battle Royale it seems that they have the same same setup every year so yes yeah, it's, it's this island I mean it's different in the book isn't it I think you've mentioned it before in the book or in the manga yeah in the manga they basically take over an island and shuffle everyone else shuffle everyone off um so that they can take it over and and carry out the game so I think certainly the location I think changed but I don't think being Japan, there's nowhere to sort of like have the sorts of extremes in change. It's not like if we set it in America, and then we could obviously have any number of different sort of settings. Similarly, you could like put it out in uh, you know Texas and have it out in the desert. You could go up to the Great White North and have it in like uh, the cold, or you could have it in Portland and have to deal with the rain. So there's a number I mean, of you options. Do, you that... do have gradation, you know. It is very cold up north, and it can be quite balmy down south. And obviously, you've got lots of islands and things like that. But yeah, it's not it's not like America or, or, or Europe or something like that where you can absolutely change change it up phenomenally. But but you know, in the Hunger Games again, the the the, the audience can get involved, can't they? They're able to send extra resources to their favourite contestants and none of there's, there's none of that interactivity going on here um but it all no, seems to be happening in the dark just... and and so they've killed 50 kids and they're going <laughs> to kill 50 next year and they're going to kill 50 uh, but, but 50's nothing yeah in the big scheme of things it's it's nothing sure. it's not it's not going to affect any population it's it, so so what is what are who is getting anything out of this if it doesn't instill fear in the children, because yeah. they didn't seem to know it was going to happen, um, so it's not going to change their behaviour. If it's not being turned into some amazing, um, uh, what's the word, uh, the, the patriotic fervour for it or anything like that, um, I just yeah, I just wonder. I just wonder what the point is. Maybe it's just about just say this wanting to kill, watch, watch kids kill each other. Well, I think I think the the program in place is the higher ups and the government feel like it's going to make some difference. But as far as like executing it and seeing it through, I think it's all for Katano's benefit. He's just like, yeah, he's like all these asshole kids all this time, and guess what? Now I'm I'm the ultimate. He's like, now you all, I want you to know your demise is because of me. He's like, you're not going to ruin my life anymore. But guess what? All of yours are ruined. And then also yeah. go. I mean, there is some coverage. Like they see you in the very beginning of the film. We see. You know, whoever's last, uh, they're coming out to, you know, revelry and applause and everything. But that's really it. Although it makes you wonder where was the press. Well, I guess that they come back from the island. That's when they would have the revelry and everything. But there is some interest. But we, I guess we don't see such a global social impact on it. No, I mean, certainly in the... In, in in both the uh, the, the book and the uh, the manga, I mean, it's seen that the idea the government has is that the survivor is going to be seen as this shining beacon of the lengths the government will go to to restore order. So it's more just a political ploy. It's kind of like with the purge. The purge covers this illusion that you know they're making a difference by having everyone get their violent impulses, but really it's just about population control. Spoiler alert: If you not watch the purge films, then so. <laughs> Um, but um, yeah, I think that it's what on the on, on the surface. I think it's it's really 
it, it's been designed to be this sort of extreme act to like show that the government are doing something but i think it's ultimately it's just more just a political play than an effective actual means because as you said Stephen, i mean the kids don't have a clue it's going on because they're too wrapped up in their own nonsense so just like the darn millennials yeah and, and, and yeah yeah and and, and, and all, all you're going to get out of it is every year create one disaffected kid that's been involved in 49 other deaths um and indeed we meet one of them in this film don't we and and we meet others in the sequel um yeah all, all you're creating is is people who will be against it there's no great prize other than life yeah if there was a prize that I think you said at the beginning, you know, that the only prize they've got is that you go home to your parents, which doesn't actually seem that attractive to half the kids in this in this class. Um, well, yeah, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? It's just it's all it's all stick and no carrot. And I just that doesn't seem very a very long term tenable scheme. But then the whole thing doesn't seem a very long term tenable scheme, does it? <laughs> Killing people like that, I guess, is ain't really going to work long term well I, I wonder if it's like a they wanted to and I'm just speculating here and just trying to come up with something but I wonder if it's supposed to be like a ripple effect kind of thing where one who survived now they have a better appreciation for life and then off they go on and so on and so forth and it's supposed to just continue to ripple and ripple and then everybody will start to change and society will start to change maybe that's something they're kind of going for but I mean it's not going to happen <laughs> It's, you have to just wonder is like what do the people that this program puts out I mean they've they got to be some pretty, it's got to be the sort of experience that really sort of messes you up for life really that um, it, it's not the sort of ideal model citizen you're going to produce through this it's sort of like oh look we've got uh, young Shuya here he killed 48 of his fellow classmates <laughs> just, uh... yeah, you're not going to get on the on the book tour are you on this <laughs> a speaking engagement hey it's the survivor of Battle Royale 7 <laughs> that'd be like the greatest big brother guest ever <laughs> that was my favourite season <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll have all sorts of other variants of it won't we we'll have it in drag we'll have it in in different countries <laughs> <laughs> I love the French rags where your your mind goes to not like oh maybe they do like different weapons or they do like older kids or they do boys versus girls no drags where your mind went to first. I think I, I'm just I'm just being modernist about it that that is what would happen wouldn't it there would be there would be RuPaul's battle royale there will there would have to be that never pays me insanely unpopular. Now you say that now, but then when it starts happening, someone's going to be raking in the money. I um, just oh, no, you go first, Nick. Um, all I was going to say was um, I always find it funny that I I don't have the most experience uh, with Asian cinema or anime or manga for that matter. But some of the anime I have watched and other cinema I have watched, it's always that one kid with like the crazy, wild up, different colored hair. Usually in that black tracksuit-looking thing, that's always the crazy one. And, and I feel like as soon as he shows up, everyone's like, "Oh no, he's going to be insane!" And then he ends up being the insane person run, running around with a newsie the entire time, grinning from ear to ear. And I just think that it's funny that such a cliche character has been around since the 2000s, if not before, because I assume that this man was out a couple of years before the film. I mean, what, you, what you've got to remember, Japanese society is very structured. It doesn't, they don't, as a rule, celebrate the different, mm, you know, okay. the, 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 the rebels. Um, they, they exist, of course they exist, you know, it's not, it's not a perfectly ordered society over there. Right. But yes, that, that trope exists, that guy's got crazy hair and he, I don't know, wears eyeliner or, or, or anything which probably <laughs> we, wouldn't bat, we wouldn't bat an eyelid at anymore, although we might have done right. it in the 50s or in the 60s. For so sure. imagine, imagine Japanese society may be 20 years behind us, and in some ways 200 years behind us, but, okay. but that... That absolutely will be that will be a very valid trope that you spotted, yeah. Not just in manga and in anime, but in live action as well. We will see that the the 
the, the crazy kid i think we saw it in death note as well actually another film that we looked at elwood you know the the the, the character with the the character looks like he stepped out of an anime, frankly, as as you call it, is is going to be is going to be the crazy kid because because he's not conforming, he's not wearing school uniform, mm. he's not wearing you know they look look at them their school uniform, it's all exactly the same, the haircuts are all exactly the same, yeah. apart from these 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 and 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 therefore they're not part of society, so they they they're given license to act crazily in 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 media in 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 fictions. So I, I think that's a that's a very valid point, and we will, you know, we've seen it over and over and over again, and Japan especially so because it's so, it's their their, their society is so structured and orderly and unlike what we're used to in the West, where you know, post you know, since the fifties, since James Dean, we've gone, to, we've grown to love our rebels, yeah. Our rebels are our heroes. Our rebels are who we aspire to be. Whereas in Japan, the rebel rebel is the outsider. Not Fair, not, like not, not, not not to be not to be um, you know not to be admired, but to be mistrusted. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I like your response. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and all our Japanese fans. Will come and say it's not like that at all. No, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> certain something. There's a lot to that. I look at, I just every, I still look at this film and like wonder how they ever considered the idea of making an American remake of this. It's just an absolute feat of uh, of filmmaking. Just the fact that you've got fifty odd characters who've all got identifiable personalities, who've got backstories and um, personal goals and plot lines and stories, and you expect somehow to transfer this over to the American style of filmmaking is just absolutely astounding that um let alone the content of this this yeah. film that you would think you could even transfer this across. I mean we have enough points with adults um engaging in violence, never mind children engaging in violence and certainly when we look at how crazy the world is, um at the moment and certainly for our friends over in the States that um it seems like there was that period where it seemed like every week there was another high school shooting happening. So it's I was surprised you guys even got Battle Royale, to be honest, the fact that it somehow managed to get over there. So, But it didn't get a cinema release, did it? it no. Um, yeah, I just read through it. It only ever hit like festivals randomly, but even then it really didn't hit festivals until like 2009, 2010. Mm. Um, this film was released... A couple months after Columbine had happened, and Columbine was like the first big catalyst, and like yeah. no studio would touch it. They were like, nope, not at all, no nothing. And then finally, it started coming around. And I don't think it's ever had an official theatrical release, maybe in like L.A. or New York or something like that, one of those major mm-hmm. major markets. Um, but I, I would I would totally go see this in theater. They did like a midnight screening, and everybody's just hooting and hollering, hanging out. Oh, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Uh, but that'll probably never happen. Like, ever, ever. I remember that's what you guys at uh, French Star Sunday need to get on. Hold the first American screening. <laughs> yeah. Well, once they allow everybody to start going back to, I mean, I'm going to a movie theater. But once know, people yeah, are more yeah. comfortable going to a movie theater and everything like that. But who knows? Just do it in someone's backyard or something. I don't, I don't know. Ooh. You guys all, you've got, all got, like, huge houses and land and... Myself and Stephen don't have like you. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not that big. Um, a couple of us are in uh, row home, townhome type things, but we do have some friends. Uh, we've been having backyard drive-ins. Uh, yeah. So last weekend they had a big tarp and a projector, and we all hung out in their yard and watched Face Off. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that was really really good. Um, occasionally the gang and I will do like. Uh, We'll all watch a movie on Zoom together where we're all on Netflix and we just count three, two, one, click. Um, and we've watched some really good stuff there. But I definitely think that, like, now something like this, now that we know, like, hey, we can just go outside with a projector and watch whatever we want. I think that's going to make it fun to watch other things like that and have a different kind of experience, uh, for better or for worse. But I think it'll always be for better. Oh, this... um brings us to the end of another edition of the About Royal podcast. Thank you as always for listening and thank you very much to our special guest tonight, Mr. Nick Rehack, for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. Um, 
I would say, I mean, at the moment, I know things are kind of crazy out in the uh, the world and especially in the blogging community. But I mean, for yourself, have you got any sort of projects coming up? Um, not particularly. Um, I have uh, I've been a guest on occasion on the Exploding Helicopter podcast. Uh, we have an episode on the other guys coming out in the coming weeks. Um, but outside of that, no, nah, man, I'm just kind of hanging out. And if somebody wants to talk about you know, be it Battle Royale or, you know, anything. I'm there. Just hit me up. Say, hey, Nick, I'll start talking. I love hearing myself talk. It's <laughs> <laughs> that American narcissism for you, man. <laughs> um, and if people obviously want to come and find you, your bits, obviously, this French Toast Sunday. Is anywhere else that you got stuff out or? Not yet. Uh, so just for the time being, com. Fantastic. Um as for ourselves, uh, if you haven't done already, uh, you please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Maybe leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show. You should also check out our main show, which is the Asian Cinema Film Club, uh, which you can find on oh, anywhere that good podcasts are found. Uh, you can also check out our full archive episodes, uh, not only for this show, but for that show as well, at Asian Cinema Film Club. WordPress.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as well. And uh, in particular, our Facebook group has just become a really fun hub of uh, discussion and me posting bits from the Godzilla collection on there. So definitely lots of uh, good bits to check out on there. And certainly also on our blog, we also have uh, the Movie Vault series from hosted by uh, David Brooke. We've got Stephen's Dark Sides of Asian Cinema and we have the mixtape as well as other fun bits of reviews and things on there as well. Um... But uh, coming up over on uh, the Asian Cinema Film Club, on our most recent episode, we looked at the Bruce Lee breakout classic, The Big Boss, one of the more unique entries in his small filmography, where he spends a good 30 minutes just avoiding fighting, making for a very unique filming experience indeed. But uh, you can check that out. Uh, just look up Asian Cinema Film Club and uh, you should be able to find that pretty easy. Uh, but again, thank you to uh, Nick for joining us. Thank you to my co-host Stephen. And we will be back next time with our next next chapter, Memories. But until then, good night. Good night.